merry meeting, blessed be. Welcome one and all to the Spiral Dance. Welcome to this week's edition of the Spiral Dance. I'm Hawthorne, and I'm very happy you could join me. That was the Jefferson Airplane we were just listening to with My Best Friend. Hey, Valentine's Day is going to be here this week on the 14th. Let's pass a couple of love notes. Some people believe that the ancient Roman holiday of the Lupercalia was the forerunner to Valentine's Day. Well, that's not actually true, but there are some associations, so we're going to take a look at what the Lupercalia was all about. Then we're going to talk a bit about the Christian St. Valentine, or Valentines, plural. There was actually more than one Valentine, but were they all lovers? 
Which brings us to romantic love. As old as the human race, right? Well, yes and no. As in all aspects of love, the answer is never simple. We're going to talk about the poet Chaucer and the Middle Ages, and we're going to go from there. Where do we go? Sex magic, of course. Going to have the spiral dance spell week towards the end of the show. That is all coming up for you. Let's give a listen right now to Kate Bush with The Sensual World here on the Spiral Dance with Hawthorne.
Okay, so we're passing some love notes uh, for Valentine's Day this week on the Spiral Dance. I'm going to start off talking about the Lupercalia. The Lupercalia was a very ancient pastoral festival observed on February the 13th through the 15th to avert evil spirits and purify the city of Rome, releasing health and fertility. It was a Roman holiday, but might possibly be pre-Roman in origin. There is a relationship between the Lupercalia and the Februa, which gives the month of February its name. The Romans called this month Februarius. The Februa was an earlier origin spring cleansing ritual on the same date. Eventually, the more popular Lupercalia subsumed the Februa. Now, the name Lupercalia most likely derives from the word lupus, which meant wolf. It was believed to have some connection to the ancient Greek festival of the Arcadian Lycaea, this from the ancient Greek Lucos or wolf, and the worship of Lycian Pan, assumed to be a Greek equivalent to Faunus. In Roman mythology, Lupercus is a god sometimes identified with the Roman god Faunus, who is the Roman equivalent of the Greek god Pan. Lupercus is the god of shepherds. His festival, the Lupercalia, was celebrated on the anniversary of the founding of his temple on the 15th of February. The temple was located on the Palatine Hill, the central hill where Rome was traditionally founded. The priests, who were called Luperci, or the Brothers of the Wolf, wore goatskins and were otherwise naked. At the temple on the Ides of February, specifically the 13th of February, a goat and a dog were sacrificed and salt meal cakes were prepared by the Vestal virgins and burnt at offerings. The rites were directed by the Luperci along with a, a corporation of priests of Faunus dressed only in goatskin. The Luperci were divided into two collegia called Quintiliana or Fabiana. At the head of each of these colleges was a magister. In 44 BC, a third college, the Juli, was instituted in honor of Julius Caesar, the first magister of which was Mark Antony. Antony offered Caesar a crown during the festival, an act that was widely interpreted as a sign that Caesar aspired to make himself king and was gauging the reaction of the crowd. The festival began with the sacrifice by the Luperci of two male goats and a dog. Next, two young patrician Luperci were led to the altar to be anointed on their foreheads with the sacrificial blood which was wiped off the bloody knife with wool soaked in milk, after which they were expected to smile and laugh. The sacrificial feast followed, after which the Luperci cut thongs from the skins of the animals, which were called Februa. They then dressed themselves in the skins of the sacrificed goats, in imitation of Lupercus, and they ran around the walls of the old Palatine city, the line of which was marked with stones, with thongs in their hands in two bands, striking the people who crowded near nearby. Girls and young women would line up on their route to receive lashes from these whips. This was supposed to ensure fertility, prevent sterility in women, and ease the pains of childbirth. During the late Republic and the Empire, Plutarch described the Lupercalia saying, Lupercalia, of which many write that it was anciently celebrated by shepherds and has also some connection to the Arcadian Lycea. At this time, many of the noble youths and the magistrates run up and down through the city naked, 
for sport and laughter, striking those they meet with shaggy thongs. And many women of rank also purposely get in their way, and like children in school, they present their hands to be struck, believing that the pregnant will thus be helped in delivery and the barren to pregnancy, unquote. By the 5th century AD, when the public performance of pagan rites had been outlawed, a nominally Christian Roman populace still clung to the Lupercalia. It had been literally degraded since the 1st century when Mark Antony did not run with the Luperci, which would have been part of the custom. Since then, the upper classes left the festivals to the lower classes. In the last decade of the 5th century, Pope Gelasius I confronted the senators who were intent on preserving Lupercalia, saying, quote, If you assert that this rite has salutary force, celebrate it yourselves in the ancestral fashion. Run nude yourself that you may properly carry out the mockery. However, Gelasius finally abolished Lupercalia after the long dispute. The Lupercalia, which featured a lover lottery, had no place in the new Christian order. After Gelasius did away with the festival, he chose Valentine as the patron saint of lovers, who would be honored at the new festival on the 14th of every February. The church decided to come up with its own lottery, and so the Feast of St. Valentine featured a lottery of saints. One would pull the name of a saint out of a box, and for the following year, they would study and attempt to emulate that saint, which I'm sure would have been a lot of fun.
Vers 4 heures de l'après-midi On se cachera derrière la voiture rouge Tu sais, la bagnole qui ne bouge jamais Now, St. Valentine's Day began as a liturgical celebration of one or more early Christian saints named Valentinus. Several martyrdom stories were invented for the various Valentines that belonged to February 14th and added to later martyrologies. A popular account of St. Valentine states that he was imprisoned for performing weddings for soldiers who were forbidden to marry and for ministering to Christians. The Emperor Claudius II supposedly forbade his soldiers to marry in order to grow his army, believing that married men did not make for good soldiers. However, this supposed marriage ban was never issued. According to legend, during his imprisonment, he healed a girl named Julia, the daughter of his jailer, Asterius. The story claims that after Julia's hearing, she and all of Asterius's family converted to Christianity and they were baptized. The legend was often repeated, adding that Pope Julius I built a church over Valentine's sepulchre. The legend was picked up as a fact by later martyrologies starting in the 8th century. It was repeated in the 13th century in a writing called Legenda Aurea. Now that book expounded briefly the early medieval acts of several St. Valentines, and this legend was assigned to Valentine under February the 14th. So, the basic Valentine story is often referred to as the Golden Legend. There have been a number of, of embellishments attached to it. One embellishment to the story states that before his execution, he wrote Julia a letter signing your Valentine as a farewell to her before his execution. The expression from your Valentine was later adopted by modern Valentine letters. This legend has been published by both American Greetings and the History Channel. Another story claims that after Valentine's death, Julia planted a pink blossoming almond tree near his grave. The almond tree supposedly still stands today and it remains a symbol of abiding love and friendship. There were actually a lot of early Christian so-called martyrs who were also known as Valentine. Among them was Valentine of Rome and Valentine of Terni. Valentine of Rome was a priest in Rome who was executed around the year 496 AD and was buried on the Via Flaminia. The relics of St. Valentine were kept in a church and catacombs of San Valentino in Rome, which remained an important pilgrim site throughout the Middle Ages until they were transferred to the church of Santa Preseda at a later time. The flower-crowned skull of St. Valentine is still exhibited in the Basilica of St. Maria in Cosmedine, Rome, 
and other relics are found at Whitefriars Street Carmelite Church in Dublin, Ireland. Valentine of Tyranny became Bishop of Interama, modern-day Tyranny, around the year 197 AD and is said to have been executed under Emperor Aurelian. He is also buried on the Via Flamina, but in a different location than Valentine of Rome. His relics are now at the Basilica of St. Valentine in Tyranny. Historian Jack B. Oruk states that, quoting, abstracts of the acts of the two saints were in nearly every church and monastery of Europe, unquote. The Catholic Encyclopedia also speaks of a third saint named Valentine who was mentioned in early martyrologies under the date of February the 14th. He was executed in Africa with a number of companions, but nothing more is known about them.
I have encountered a creature so gracious, so delicate, so noble, that I cannot praise her so much nor love her so much that she would not deserve more. Love put out her nets of gold spread among flowers woven by Venus, so pleasant and easy that though a churlish heart might have broken them, I had no wish to do so. And for a bit, I enjoyed myself in them until the tender threads became hard and secured with knots beyond untying. And though I seem to have entered into great labor, I feel it in such sweetness that if I could free myself, I would not wish to do so for anything in the world. I've abandoned all thoughts and affairs that are grave and serious. I no longer delight in reading ancient things or discussing modern ones. They are all turned into soft conversations, for which I thank Venus and all Cyprus. As to greater things, I have never found anything in them but harm, and in those of love, always good and pleasure. Farewell. Yours, Niccolo Machiavelli. Valentine's Day was first associated with romantic love in the Middle Ages, thanks to the writings of Geoffrey Chaucer. This was when the tradition of courtly love flourished. There's no evidence of any link between Valentine's Day and the rites of the ancient Roman festival of Lupercalia, despite many claims by many authors. The celebration of St. Valentine did not have any romantic connotations until Chaucer's poetry about Valentines in the 14th century. Valentine's story was a sentiment over the alleged love that grew between himself and the daughter of his jailer, and it was later promoted as a lesson of the Christian God's love for his people. Popular modern sources claim links to unspecified Greco-Roman February holidays alleged to be devoted to fertility and love to St. Valentine's Day. But prior to Chaucer in the 14th century, there were no links between the saints named Valentinus and romantic love. Earlier festivals were focused on sacrifice rather than romantic love. In the ancient Athenian calendar, the period between mid-January and mid-February was the month of Gamaliel, dedicated to the sacred marriage of Zeus and Hera. The Lupercalia was a rite connected to fertility, but it was a festival local to the city of Rome. The more general festival of Juno Februa, meaning Juno the Purifier or the Chaste Juno, was celebrated more generally across the Roman world during February 13th through 14th. Historian Jack B. Aruk tells us that the first recorded association of Valentine's Day with romantic love is in Chaucer's poem Parliament of Foals from 1382. And here I'll just give you the modern English version, quoting, For this was on St. Valentine's Day when every bird cometh there to choose his mate, unquote. Now this poem was written to honor the first anniversary of the engagement of King Richard II of England to Anne of Bohemia. The treaty providing for a marriage was signed on May the 2nd in 1381, and I think my British listeners would agree that February 14th was not widely noted as a time when every bird cometh there to choose his mate. The idea of romantic love took hold among the aristocracy in the Middle Ages. The origins of courtly love were believed to be in Aquitaine in France in the 12th century and they spread to other European countries. Two women who had a particular influence on the development of romance were 
Eleanor of Aquitaine, Aquitaine, Queen first of France and then of England, and her daughter Marie, who was the Countess of Champagne. Eleanor brought to the English court her interest in poetry, music, and the arts, all of which were cultivated in the court of Aquitaine, where she grew up. Her grandfather, William, was the first known troubadour poet. In the vernacular narratives that were written for and or dedicated to Eleanor, early romances, we find an emphasis on the sort of love relationship that is depicted in troubadour poetry, commonly known as courtly love. The courtly love relationship is modeled on the feudal relationship between a knight and his liege lord. The knight serves his courtly lady with the same obedience and loyalty which he owes to his liege lord. She is in complete control of the love relationship where he owes her obedience and submission, a literary convention which of course did not correspond to actual practice. The knight's love for the lady inspires him to do great deeds in order to be worthy of her love or to win her favor. Thus, courtly love was originally construed as an ennobling force, whether or not it was consummated, and whether or not the lady actually knew about the knight's love or loved him in return. The courtly love relationship typically was not between husband and wife because it was an idealized sort of relationship that could not exist within the context of real-life medieval marriages. In the Middle Ages, marriages amongst the nobility were typically based on practical and dynastic concerns rather than on love. A successful marriage was perceived as one that brought material advantages to the participants and their families. The idea that a marriage could be based on love was a radical notion. The audience for courtly romance was perfectly aware that these romances were fictions, not models for actual behavior. The adulterous aspect that may bother modern readers was somewhat beside the point, which was to explore the potential influence of love on human behavior. As love was clearly unrelated to marriage, the requirement for romance could be gained outside marriage as long as the rules relating to chastity and fidelity were strictly adhered to. There were strict rules associated with courtly love. The romance rules and art of courtly love allowed knights and ladies to show their admiration regardless of their marital state. The following rules and elements of courtly love during the Middle Ages were written by the 12th century Frenchman Andreas Capelanus, and here they are. Marriage is no real excuse for not loving. He who is not jealous cannot love. No one can be bound by a double love. It is well known that love is always increasing or decreasing. That which a lover takes against the will of his beloved is no relish. Boys do not love until they arrive at the age of maturity. When one lover dies, a widowhood for two years is required of the survivor. No one should be deprived of love without the very best of reasons. No one can love unless he is impelled by the persuasion of love. Every lover regularly turns pale in the presence of his beloved. A new love puts to flight an old one. A man in love is always apprehensive. Real jealousy always increases the feeling of love. Every act of a lover ends in the thought of his beloved. Love can deny nothing to love. A man who is vexed by too much passion usually does not love. Nothing forbids one woman being loved by two men 
or one man by two women. So it was a common occurrence for a married lady to give a token to a knight of her choice to be worn during a medieval tournament. There were rules which governed courtly love, but sometimes the parties who started their relationship with such elements of courtly love would become deeply involved. A famous example of a relationship which was stirred by romantic courtly love and romance is described in the legend of King Arthur, where his queen Guinevere fell in love with Sir Lancelot. Many illicit court romances were fueled by the practice and art of courtly love. Valentine's Day is mentioned ruefully by Ophelia in William Shakespeare's Hamlet, quoting, Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, all in the morning betime, and I, a maid of your widow, to be your valentine. Then up he rose and donned his clothes and duped the chamber door, let in the maid that out a maid never departed more, unquote. Now, the modern cliché Valentine's Day poet can be found in the collection of the English nursery rhyme by Gamer Gorton's Garland from 1784. And it says, The rose is red, the violet's blue, the honey is sweet, and so are you. Thou art my love, and I am thine. I drew thee to my valentine. The lot was cast, and then I drew, and fortune said it should be you.
Sex magic. Sex magic directs the energies raised during sensual arousal to achieve a desired goal. Western sex magic often uses alchemical terminology, although its sources go back to ancient shamanism, pre-Christian pagan practices, and some sects of Gnosticism. Basic concepts include the extension of sensual activity to build up the energy and that if the thought is held at orgasm, it will come to pass. Prominent proponents include the Ordo Templi Orientis, Louis T. Culling, and Aleister Crowley. In recent decades, these Western practices have been influenced by Indian and Tibetan Tantra, as well as Chinese Taoist alchemy. Sex magic is a means to an end, a way to mobilize the amazing creative power of sexual energy to generate a des desired result. Basically, you do sex magic for the same reason you would do any other type of magic to cause something that you desire to happen. Your goal might be to promote healing or attract money or achieve spiritual enlightenment. When you add sexual energy, you increase the intensity of a magic spell. It's like adding more octane to gasoline. Sexual energy is life energy. Its nature is to create. During sex magic, you plant seeds with your thoughts to the vertical womb of the cosmic matrix. You impregnate the matrix with, with what's known as a magical child. Before engaging in sex, there should be an objective that you intend to bring about. Choose only one objective at a time so that you can direct your undivided attention towards it. If you're working with a partner or a group of people, discuss your intention in advance and make sure that everyone agrees on the result that you intend to generate. Keep it simple. Compose your intention in the form of an affirmation. It should be something that you could easily hold in your mind and perhaps shout out loud when you're in the throes of ecstasy. Sex magic is both an art and a skill. Like any other art or skill, it requires learning certain techniques then practicing those techniques to build up your magical muscles. The first step is to slow down, drawing out the experience and allowing your sexual energy to build gradually enhances your magical power. 
luxuriate in your sexuality. Let your excitement slowly increase until you feel almost ready, then back off. Do some deep breathing. When the immediacy has subsided, gradually elevate the level of, of excitation until once again you're almost reached the point of climax, then ease off again. Continue in this manner for as long as you like, slowly and steadily building intensity. With practice, you learn to stay on the edge for an extended period of time. During this period, keep your intention in mind. The more intense your feelings, the faster you could attract what you desire. And in this state, your magnetic power is tremendous. You don't have to focus keenly on your objective all the time, but remain aware of your purpose for engaging in this sexual ritual. As you raise energy and cycle it through your body, mentally attach your intention to that energy. When you're finally ready to release the energy that you've built up, hold your intention clearly in your mind and feel the pleasure of having your desired outcome manifested in your life. Then let your orgasm wash through you. As it does, it sweeps your intention before it, like a wave pushing a boat along its crest. The momentum that you've generated carries your intention out into the universe where it lodges in the fertile womb of the matrix and it creates a magical child. After orgasm, relax, stop thinking about your intention, enjoy the calm after the tempest, allow the universe to do its part.
Okay, that was Daniel Anderson, known by those of us who love her as Daniel Ate the Sandwich, and the name of that tune was Caught in the Moment. We also heard Enya doing Marble Halls. Laura Powers was in there with I've Loved You Forever. Fringy and the Punk with Make Out. And we started this week's set off with Kate Bush doing The Central World. Now it's time for this week's Spiral Dance Spell of the Week. And this week's Spiral Dance Spell of the Week is for Wednesday, the 14th of February, Valentine's Day. And this is called A Couple Spell. It's not like a couple of spells. It's a spell for couples, right? So, you know, life is hard on relationships. You know that. The demands of career, kids, different work schedules, they all add up, and often it's the relationship that you treasure the most that suffers. Ennui sets in, creating a distance between loving partners, and if you aren't careful, you'll soon be taking each other for granted. So, fight back with this fun spell for which you will need some chocolate and something sparkling to drink, like wine, carbonated water, sparkling juice, Perhaps the two of you have a favorite chocolate dessert that you can make together. If not, buy some chocolates, some good chocolates that you both will enjoy. Pick a time when the two of you could be together and alone without interruption, where a little something that you know your partner enjoys seeing you in, light some candles and snuggle up together and feed each other chocolates. While doing so, be mindful of just how much you care for this other person and how much you enjoy sharing your life with him or her. Okay, that was offered by Laura Rofner. It appeared in the 2006 Witches Spell Day Almanac. I do not know why you don't do this every single night, but if you don't, give it a try this week. Send me an email, radiohawthorne at yahoo.com. Spiral Dance with Hawthorne here is Miss Tess with Don't Tell Mama.
I don't care how long you stay And I don't care when you go Just as long as there's a way for you to know When the lights are turned down low There's a place where we can go If you just let me show you I could really get to know you I see your glass is empty How's about another round? What a sentimental feeling we have found As I look you up and down When there's nobody around We could leave without a sound Get off just to turn you on. I like that an awful lot. That was Miss Tess with Don't Tell Mama. That's going to do it for me for this week. I had a great time talking about Valentine's Day. I hope that you did as well. I'll be back again next week with a brand new show. Until then, merry part till merry meet again. Blessed be.